I'm Jonathan Bastian, this week on KCRW's Life Examined. The science and evolution behind friendship. Can your ability to maintain strong and lasting friends determine how successful you'll be? Not to say that there aren't some successful jerks out there, but if you want, you know, the best odds are that if you're good at making friends and you have strong friends around you, you will do better. And later, as we reemerge from the pandemic, should we be a little picky? Why some of us won't be rushing to resurrect all our friendships. I don't know if you ever had uh, been uh, really, really busy, again, this idea of busyness, and you didn't really realize that your shoes really hurt, and then when you took off your shoes, like, oh, I feel so much better. And there are relationships that are like that. The evolution, value, and beauty of friendship. That's all ahead on KCRW's Life Examined. It's probably fair to say that for most of us, 2020 was a pretty quiet year. Although some gathered in bubbles or pods with immediate family and closest friends, large social gatherings with the potential for making new friendships have been pretty non-existent. So, as we re-engage with one another after a year's lockdown, who will we choose to interact with? And what can we learn from other animals about the value of social bonds? Because it's not just humans who have friends. Author and journalist Lydia Denworth has written about the meaning of friendship in her latest book. It's called Friendship, the Evolution, Biology, and Extraordinary Power of Life's Fundamental Bond. She says that a good friendship is as important to our health as diet and exercise. And those who are good at making friends are far more likely to be successful in whatever they choose to do. Well, Lydia Denworth, welcome to Life Examined on KCRW. Hi, Jonathan. It's good to be here. So when we when we think about friendship and we go way back into time, I, I, I presume that the idea of friends might exist between animals and might be pre-human. What do we know in terms of the evolution and the biology of friendship? Yes, friendship exists across species, but we did not know that until quite recently. So, and and finding friendship or something like it in other species is one of the things that has shown us recently that that there's so much more to friendship than we thought that it that that it's this fundamental thing and that that's a there's a bigger story um and in people we thought it was really cultural a byproduct Mm -hmm. of language and human civilization and we've appreciated it for thousands of years all the way back to aristotle and socrates and um and then philosophers through the years in between but um, but it's only really in the last like 20 years or so that we have understood that there's this biology and evolutionary story there. W- would you say a little bit more about that? I mean, is this something we see in primates? W- where does it exist? Yeah. So especially in other, in non-human primates, uh, we see if you call it friendship or not, I mean, is a little bit of a, of an, of a question. Some scientists sure. do call it friendship. Some don't. There's lots of concern about you know, uh, making assumptions about other animals. But I'm going to go right ahead (laughs) and call it friendship. Um, Especially, so it's especially interesting in non-human primates and monkeys and apes because they have social lives, many of them that look more like ours, and their brains are quite similar to ours. Mm. So what we see in the way they interact can tell us quite a bit about our own history and our own propensities and abilities. And it's also the case. So for instance, there was a lot of research done on baboons in Africa, and they were, they live in an environment that's probably very similar to where, um, to where humans first, um, you know, developed. And, and so we can kind of look to the baboons in a way as a very simplistic version of what, of what, what you're stripping away the complex variables of human life. And you're looking at Mm. the way these animals interact. But so the baboons have friends, rhesus macaques have friends, gorillas. I mean, there are differences in different species, but it's also the case that zebras hang out with the certain animals in the herd more than chance Mm. would predict and not just their relatives. And of course, elephants are famous for their lifelong bonds, um, again, not just with family members. And, but even zebrafish will um, behave differently in the presence of familiar fish and strangers. They freeze when there are 
um, un, you know, strange fish around, and and they're much more relaxed <laughs> when they're in the presence yeah, yeah. of their quote friends. So we see this kind of social behavior in all kinds of species, um, but in humans, of course, it is it is uh, it's much more complex. But like I said, that finding it in these other species, and especially in the monkeys and apes, um, I mean, that's where we've learned the most, I'd say, about our own. Uh, relationships. It's interesting because part of me would think you would have maybe your mate or your family, and then anybody else might be competition or <laughs> somebody you'd have to deal with. But but I guess what you're saying is that in these in these species, really, um, there there is a sense of bonding. And maybe you can talk about what we know about the purpose of these friends or or why why you know a a baboon would choose to keep a friend around. Yes, well. It's so it's I think it's quite fascinating. It's really goes back to thinking about why we and other species live in groups. And the mm. bigger the group, the more complicated the dynamics, but the more you're also able to accomplish in some ways. Right. And so so one of the theories is that our brains as our well, as our social world got more complex and we had to keep straight, not just our relationship with this person and our relationship with that individual, but their relationship with each other, say, or, you know, um, and keeping track of the relationships and of personalities and of the histories, it requires a bigger brain. And so that's the social brain hypothesis that the complexity of your social life is um is an important part of how we got to be as smart as we are as humans. Right. Um, but but also to get to what you sort of specifically, like what does it get us? Well, it turns out that there are real evolutionary advantages to being good at making and maintaining friends. You could say that there has been a survival of the friendliest <laughs> and that, mm. and that mm. is true. So we first saw that in these baboons that researchers were studying in Africa. And they had always thought that dominance hierarchy was probably the most important factor in the fate of these individual animals over time. Right. right? And, you know, baboons are a very hierarchical species. And these, but these primatologists were watching baboons over generations actually of the same troops and so they were and they 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 behave like the scientists are kind of like glorified gossip columnists they're tr keeping track of exactly who does what to whom when <laughs> who help right, who right. else is around but they were keeping track of that for a variety of reasons and then then something happened that that provoked them into thinking wait a minute maybe there's more to this so there was a there was a baboon named Sylvia who lived in Botswana and Sylvia was very high up in the hierarchy, but she was also really a pretty nasty piece of work. And she mm -hmm. only hung around with her daughter, Sierra. Um, that was her primary grooming partner. And and then Sierra, unfortunately, was killed by a lion because that is something that happens um, to baboons living in Africa. And Sylvia did something that really surprised the researchers who were watching her, but also presumably surprised the other baboons <laughs> who were used to her bad behavior. She started trying to make friends instead mm. of going off and, and mourning the loss of her daughter and being grumpy in the sort of under a, an acacia tree by herself. She she changed her behavior and the scientists wondered what would be in it for her. Why would she do that? So what they what they did was they um, they were able to take all that data they had collected about the animal's behavior and they compared it, they, they added it up to a number that they essentially equated to how often the baboons were nice to each other. And then they measured that against their reproductive success. So how many babies they had and how healthy those babies, how long those babies lived or whether they lived past a year and their longevity, how long these baboons lived themselves. And in evolutionary terms, you cannot do better than, uh, than reproductive success and longevity. And what they found was that the baboons with the strongest social bonds lived the longest and had the most reproductive success. And it mattered more than where they were in the dominance hierarchy. And 
so this was this a hugely important finding. It was in Science Magazine, which is about as prestigious as you can get in right, in science, right. and and it showed us that exactly what I said that there are real advantages to this, and that you know it's not to say that there aren't some successful jerks out there, but if you want, <laughs> if you want. To, you know, the best odds are that if you're good at making friends and you have strong friends around you, you will do better. And the reasons are probably, I mean, so for baboons, they have to do with um, protecting against predators. It has to do with finding food. It has to do with, you know, having relationships you can rely on. And in people, it really is kind of the same. I mean, we want our friends there to protect us when the lions come, right? I mean, they're right, not the right. actual lions like you find in Africa, but there are plenty of figurative lions in our lives. And really, in many ways, that is what friends are for. We get all of the joys of friendship and the rewards that we get from building the relationship keeps us coming back for more and we do that so we have built up that relationship so that when we need them our friends are there and we are healthier and we live longer when we have those friends yeah i mean a lot of your writing has been talking about simply the health benefits of of having a strong social network and we can think about this in, in everyday life i think of just the other day my father was feeling ill I had to go to the hospital he called me he called other people we got him there we got him back P people that don't have that i mean literally can't get the help that they need but i sense there's a whole lot of other reasons why a strong sense of friends can, can keep you healthy long term Yes. So it's it's great that that's the example you give because taking people to the hospital sort of figures largely in this history of the science of friendship. So what we know is that your risk of dying earlier is greater if you are lonely, if you are socially isolated, and if you just straight live alone. Um, all of those things increase your risk by about a quarter to a third of dying earlier. So why would that be? And let me just clarify my terms because there are differences. So loneliness is considered the subjective feeling of a mismatch between the amount of connection you want and the amount that you have. Mm. Social isolation is an objective measure of your number of, of interactions and the size of your social network. And then, of course, living alone is living alone. And Early on, when, when sociologists and epidemiologists were first beginning to see that there was this connection with longevity and social integration, they thought that this concept of social support was the explanation, which is exactly what you just mentioned about your dad, that if you need to go to the hospital and you've got someone there to take you, you're more likely to live longer. Like that would seem to explain it, right? It's sort of indirect. Mm -hmm. And that is absolutely true, that you do live longer if you have someone around to drive you to the hospital. Right. But baboons don't drive each other to the hospital and <laughs> they live longer too so clearly friendship is doing something deeper right it's getting into our cells and loneliness does too so a lot of this research a lot of understanding the the benefits of friendship came from first studying loneliness and looking at the negative so you can think of it as a continuum right, right. loneliness is the one end of your social integration and friendship is the other and just in the same ways that loneliness is bad for you friendship is good for you so it affects let me just run through the list so that people will really take this seriously <laughs> mm -hmm. it affects your cardiovascular function, your immune system. So that's your susceptibility or your resilience to viruses and inflammation. It affects your risk of dementia. So your cognitive health, your risk of depression, your mental health, your stress responses, your sleep responses, your even the rate at which your cells age. So you biologically age faster if you are chronically lonely than if you are not. Um, and of course, as I've already said, you, you're just at risk of dying earlier if you are lonely. So mm. how is it that friendship, this relationship that exists entirely outside our body can get into the cells under the skin, as biologists say, and change how healthy we are? I mean, that's what's so fascinating about this. Certainly. And there must be so many different angles to this. For example, we did a program on the importance of human touch 
and how mm-hmm. that could impact uh, our immune system so much, how it was able to get premature babies out of hospitals faster when they were touched and massaged. There's incredible research there. And, and I just imagine that that's maybe one slice of this. You're touched more, you're held more, you're hugged. Um, you are in connection. I mean, connection, as we know, is something that just feels good. I mean, maybe you can add more nuance to this, but it seems there's a, there's a lot of reasons for this. There are a lot of reasons, and you're right, touch is one of them. Affective touch, we call it, that I actually wrote a cover story for Scientific American about this, um, that mm. you know that, that it's one of the first ways that infant, well, that newborns learn to be social because they're getting that caressing touch from their mother usually right, right away, right? And, and it's wiring up their brains in a specific way. Um, but also, all of our senses. I mean, that's what I think is so, friendship is about the senses. And actually during the um, pandemic, one of the things we were missing, so Zoom, the, a Zoom conversation is a whole lot better than not having a conversation and not yeah. connecting. And it gave us the audio and the video, but we couldn't get touch, we couldn't get smell, we couldn't, you know, and you don't think of those pieces of your relationship with your friends in the same way, you know, in the same way that you do sort of looking at them, but they were missing. And mm-hmm. that and that does, there is a cost to that. And so our, our brains take in through all of our senses and then we process that. You know, there's still, this is actually where the research is continuing to understand, uh, the scientists call them the mechanisms and pathways that, you know, how is it that friendship does these things? Um, I mean, in the immune system, one of the things we know, I said that it, that friendship or loneliness can affect how susceptible you are to viruses and inflammation. We know that what happens is that your gene expression so you know your body you you come into the world right with a sort of blueprint in your genes but we know that a lot depends on what happens to you then whether those Mm -hmm. genes are turned on or off it's like an opinion that is never voiced (laughs) if if Mm, they're turned off right and um the your social experience can affect whether those genes in your immune system that control how your white blood cells respond, it can affect whether they're turned on or off the genes. So um, obviously there's even more complicated than that, but that's that's a good enough of a, I mean, you can see just how specific it can get, <laughs> right? Sure, um, sure. And, uh, and, you know, stress is another big, It's it does make sense that um, we know that hanging out with people who, you like and feel supported by and who you trust calms you down, right? It lowers your cortisol levels. It um, it releases happier hormones in your body, oxytocin and dopamine and endorphins and things like that. Um, and then once stress in your body, is a little stress is okay. It's actually can be good for you, but chronic unrelieved stress, of course, we all know is is terrible for you. And loneliness is kind of the equivalent of that it's 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 a chronic a little it's it can be a chronic problem that 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 changes the way your body responds to the world um and leaves you less healthy Mm. Um, and actually i just want to add to this because i think this is fascinating and this is quite new um well the theory is not so new but the proof is new So back in the 90s, when people were just beginning to study the physical effects of loneliness, they had a theory that loneliness is like a biological warning signal. It's like hunger or thirst. It's your brain telling you that it's time to connect. And and that would be the case then that you could say that loneliness is like stress. A little bit is good for you because it is reminding you that to get back out and connect with people and that if it's unrelieved and chronic it starts to wear down your your internal your cells and things in your body um and just recently mit ironically right at the beginning of the pandemic as we were all going into social isolation mit showed that deep in the brain loneliness looks like hunger that the looks like hunger yeah the hunger pangs and the feelings of of unrelieved loneliness um, look very, very similar. So that yeah. is what it is, which I just think is fascinating. It is. Yeah. What a way to think about it. 
Wow. Mm-hmm. And, and thinking about, I, I think, cortisol and stress, I mean, as you were talking about this, I just, I had this feeling of, uh, that I think a lot of people can relate to, which is that you see some dear friends, you sit down together, and there's almost this big exhale of here yeah. we are, right? Yeah. yeah. We can settle in, we're safe, this is, we're happy, you know, the stress of the world just kind of just fades away for a little bit. And and I find that that is truly so unique among a, a healthy friendship. Because let's face it, sometimes with family, it's not always that case, right? It, There's a lot of complications there. It can be that there. or it can right. be toxic, you know, with right. your family. Right. Um, in fact, that is what the word friend, we use it to describe the quality of a relationship. So if you tell me that your brother or your sister or your spouse is your best friend, you're Mm -hmm. adding a qualitative element to what I know about that relationship. You're telling me about the value added, right? It's not just about being siblings, it's about being great friends. And that tells me that they make you feel happy and and good and safe in exactly the way you just described. And it's interesting then to start thinking about the difference between a romantic partner and a friend, you know, a wife or a spouse and and a dear friend. How do we begin to disentangle these things when, well, we think that modern day love should include aspects of friendship. So how do you begin to draw that line? Well, I think this new science of friendship that that I have been researching and writing about so much and that's in my book is it does two things. It actually helps to clarify what friendship is, but it also blurs the lines a little bit between mm-hmm. these different kinds of relationships. So let me explain what I mean. It clarifies what friendship is because by studying it across species, um, we researchers were able to zero in on essential elements of a really quality relationship. These would be the kinds of relationships that have those positive health benefits that I was talking about. Right. And it it requires three things. The relationship is stable and long lasting. It's positive, so it makes you feel good. And it's cooperative. There's a, a reciprocity to it and a helpfulness, right? A back and forth. And you need all three of those things. Um, and everything that Humans often, if you ask people, you know, what's your definition of friendship, they will talk about trust and loyalty and companionship. All of that can fit into those three things I mentioned, you know, this, mm-hmm. the, the, sta- the stability, the positiveness and the cooperativeness. So if we say, if we take that as our template for a really good, healthy relationship, we can apply that to our spouses and romantic significant others and to our family members, our relatives. So the definition of a friend simply as someone you're not related to and don't have sex with <laughs> is mm-hmm. is limited, right? It's, um, I think, and it's not, I think we can use this, temp- this, this model of a really good relationship as a template to guide all of our relationships. Um, now, let me just not be naive and say, I know that if you live with someone for many, many years, as I have with my husband, or if you have family relationships, there's a lot that gets packed into that. There's a lot of decisions mm-hmm. you have to make. There's a lot of trade-offs and things. It's, it's complicated and there are going sure. to be negative moments. But what is important is that you've got, you're, you're working to preserve the, the positive, especially in the cooperative part and that it feels, you know, it feels good. It makes you feel good. And I think we can, I also have been for myself um, using this science as a way of reminding myself to check my own sort of friendship behavior. You know, we have a tendency to complain how other people treat us without looking at our own behavior, both with our friends and our family. I was joking with someone like I I never criticize how my friends load the dishwasher, <laughs> but yeah. I criticize my husband and my kids yeah. all the time. And do yeah. I really need to do that? Maybe not. I don't know. And when we've explored, I think, marriage in the U.S., and you alluded to this a second ago, there's so much packed into what's considered a good marriage or good long-term relationship. But I think one of the the things that was highlighted in those conversations was that Friends allow us to have different needs met. They can't mm-hmm. always be met by an intimate uh, partner, which is, I think is so crucial to to the role that these great friends play in our lives. I agree, and I actually it it look the research seems clear that it's healthiest to have a good, strong, romantic relationship 
but also to have some friends and, you know, yeah. to have to have a little variety there and to have other people that, yes, exactly that, that you get you get some needs met in other ways. And you have it's also let's face it, it's a place to talk about what the happens relationship in itself. <laughs> the relationship itself. Exactly. Yeah. But sometimes that's healthy and sometimes that yeah. is just what we need. And then we can go back to it um, sort of restored and ready to be um, more thoughtful. Well, I, I've really enjoyed this conversation. I've been speaking with Lydia Denworth, journalist, science reporter, and author of Friendship, the Evolution, Biology, and Extraordinary Power of Life's Fundamental Bond. Thanks so much for the time. We appreciate it. Thank you, Jonathan. Still to come, how many friends are too many? And is now a good time to drop the friends that drain and drag you down? Author and journalist Kate Murphy joins us after the break. And a reminder that if you missed any of our shows, check us out on Apple Podcasts. There you'll see last week's episode on the secret and social lives of trees. This is Life Examined on KCRW. Introducing the KCRW Donation Car, designed to be recycled. This first-of-its-kind vehicle will save you time, space, and hassle by disappearing. Enjoy the luxury and comfort of turning your underused car into a donation worth hundreds, even thousands of dollars. The KCRW Donation Car, already in your garage, driveway, or on cinder blocks outside your house. Act now at kcrw.com cars. I'm Jonathan Bastian, back with Life Examined on KCRW. We just heard Lydia Denworth talk about the evolutionary and biological nature of social bonds, how the bond of friendship is not just pleasant, but essential, and how it affects our bodies and our minds. So as we emerge from a year of isolation, how much of our pre-COVID social lives will we want to recreate? In her latest article in the New York Times, journalist and author Kate Murphy says the pandemic may have provided us with an opportunity to, quote, shed unsatisfying and unfilling relationships, while giving us the time and space to strengthen bonds with those we truly cared about. Kate Murphy is also the author of You're Not Listening, What You're Missing and Why It Matters. And it's a pleasure to have you back on Life Examined. Welcome. Well, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. Well, here we are. I, I feel like this is a pretty strange moment in time. In California, at least, the streets are full, the restaurants are full, people are rushing about. I see friends post about how their calendars are filling up. I don't know, Kate, how are you feeling about this? As we talk about friendship and isolation and a lot of big themes, how do you understand the landscape in one that feels like it's shifting very quickly below our feet right now? I really feel like people are as you say, trying to resume their normal lives. But at the same time, there's this hesitancy. They don't want to lose what they've learned. And also just that pace mm. that we had where we weren't always rushing around, where there wasn't always this sense of busyness, where we lost touch with who we were and who really sustained us in terms of our friendships and our connections. And so now people are kind of deciding whether or not, and almost not deciding, it's, it's really, it's that choice of whether or not you're going to keep that focus and that you really liked being able to step back and to be more mindful about what you were doing in your life and what is meaningful and who is meaningful to you. Or do you fall back into that world of deciding of, you know, what am I going to post next on Instagram and mm. how's this going to look and who can I be with when? And I'm, I don't want to be alone. Mm -hmm. Whereas you know, before, that wasn't an issue anymore. It, it, it wasn't an issue. You didn't have that fear of missing out. And so now that fear of missing out is ramping up again because everybody's active again. Right. And, and it's, it's really, it's a decision point for a lot of us. This is something you've written about most recently in the New York Times, and, 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 and I think you had a really interesting take on how over the last year there was this kind of mass meditation on, on friendship. I mean, we, had, we were confronted with this idea of a pod, who's in it, who's out, how do we make these decisions? Talk to me a little bit about um, how we kind of reconstructed the idea of friendship or, or thought it through in new ways over the last year. At the height of the pandemic, every interpersonal interaction, you were doing a risk-benefit analysis, essentially. 
And so you were really looking at, is it worth it to be with this person? Right. And, and it, it, does, it gets a little bit ruthless. Where you, and you discover pretty quickly how committed you and the other person is to the relationship. What are you willing to risk? And so you could say it's not personal, but fundamentally it is. And so you think about, you know, who did you uh, take the risk to be with? Who was that important to you? And, and that was really what we were discovering. And we were also discovering who we missed mm -hmm. and also who we didn't miss. It was almost like, I don't know if you ever had uh, been uh, really, really busy. Again, this idea of busyness. And you didn't really realize that your shoes really hurt. And then when you took off your shoes, like, oh, I feel so much better. <laughs> and there are relationships that are like that. And so people realized in the absence of that person, oh, what a relief. And they mm -hmm. didn't really realize, oh, that was too tight or that was pinching until they took it off to extend that metaphor. And so a lot of people really decided or really realized more than decided it was an awakening. Who sustains them? Who gives them energy? Who makes them feel better? And really, I, I, I talked about this in a piece that I did in the Times, that really any traumatic experience, not just the pandemic, anyone who's gone through a breakup or a death in the family or a health scare or a financial turnaround, they realize who they go to and who they want to stay away from. Mm. And it's, it's the people that drain and drag you down. Maybe you could deal with them at another point in your life, but when you're low on those emotional resources, you realize who your real friends are. And that happened during the pandemic. And except with the pandemic, it was a collective traumatic experience. So we were all sorting and sifting through our relationships at once. So it really was an incredible social shift. And... I, don't, I think even now, as things are ramping up back up, we don't really know how this is going to shake out because there were a lot of people that did realize, whoa, you know, that relationship wasn't comfortable. I don't want to go back to that. So the, relation, the invitations that are being extended or perhaps not being extended is really, it's, it, there's, I think there's going to be a social shift. And it's just whether or not we can sustain that. When you get busy, you have more emotional resources. You're able to deal with that person that irritates you a little bit more. And mm. it's just, it's the extent the, to which you allow yourself to fall back into that hole. We all have to deal with people that, I mean, gosh, we all have family members that you have to, you, you, you deal with that are, are not perfect friends. And indeed, none of us are perfect friends all the time. But there's a big difference between a friend, a true friend, and a friend that is what the, the you might call a frenemy who mm -hmm. maybe knocks you down a little bit or is draining. And, right. and, and it's, it's, it's difficult to be healthy if you don't have good friendships. Yeah. And we're hired, wired to be, to be attracted to people who give us that sense of energy. That sense of energy is really a release of feel-good neurochemicals that contribute to your health and well-being. And at the same time, when you have those false friends or those superficial friends or frenemies, those jabs and betrayals actually are felt within your body as physical pain. It mm. registers in your brain as physical pain. So it's not only our emotional health that depends on who we surround ourselves with, it's our physical health. It's even your immunity, right. your blood pressure, your cognitive function is all affected by those relationships. We somehow have this notion that um, the more friends, the better. The more we can extend ourselves out, the better. And you spoke to someone um, called Robin Dunbar. This is an evolutionary psychologist who, who made maybe a slightly different argument, which is that we have the cognitive capacity to accommodate maybe four to six close friends, which I thought was pretty interesting. 
I love Robin Dunbar. His work is so interesting and so well thought out and so enduring. But yes, that was one of his findings, that we really only have the cognitive capacity and emotional resources to have four to six close friends. And that would include if you're, say, your parent or your sibling. A lot of people don't include those people as your close friends. But in a lot of cases, if if you're lucky in some cases, and your spouse as well is your friend, your good close friend. And you only have so many slots. Mm. So if you've got your spouse there, you've got maybe a child or a sibling or a parent. So that's taken up three slots right there. So you've got really left only two for people outside of, of those, if, if you have those. So it, it's a limited number of slots. And, and if you think about it, 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 it really, it's, it's time. Friendships, close relationships are a matter of time. They're an investment of your time. Mm-hmm. And so when we think about this busyness and I've got to go to this party and I've got to network and I've got to be around these people, it's not that quality time that builds the types of relationships that sustain us. And if you only have that many slots, it's really behooves you to think about who am I going to invest that time and that energy in? Because Mm -hmm. as I mentioned before, it's essential to your health, not only emotionally, psychologically, but physically. It's what keeps you physically healthy. You've also talked about this interesting idea of, of a friendscape, which is a term I've, I've never heard before, but it's, it's kind of a practical way of thinking about how we keep friends in our lives, how close they are, how, how, how far they are. Can, can you talk about this idea and, and where you got it from? I got that from, I have to give credit where credit is due, to Suzanne Degas-White. She is a professor um, at Northern Illinois University. And mm. she is she has this idea of thinking about, instead of thinking who you want to exclude or include in your social circle, it's think about your social network as a landscape, or as she calls it, a friendscape, where you have people in the foreground, which would be that four to six that Robin Dunbar talks about Mm. in our top tier. And then you have the middle ground friends that maybe you invest time in, maybe you see them once a month. Those, Those foreground friends you see maybe daily or weekly, or you communicate with daily or weekly. And then in the the middle ground are more those people that are maybe I think would number, according to Robin Dunbar and also Suzanne Degas-White, is about 15 to 20 people you can have in that that middle ground. Mm. And those are people that maybe you see every month, uh, maybe every couple months. And then out in the background and then off towards the horizon are people that you progressively invest less time and emotional energy and, and it's really deciding who do you want to be front and center in your life. And, and you think about arranging things, you know, who are the ornamentals in your landscape? Right. <laughs> who, right. You know, and who are the, the sturdy shrubs and who are the flowers and the ones that really give you joy and are continually mm. blooming and growing? And, and maybe a fruit tree that's sustaining you. I don't sure. want to you know, extend the metaphor out too <laughs> long. But still, it, it is an idea to help you think about who do you want in your foreground. And, uh, you know, again, when I was talking about that issue of health, but also the research has shown over and over that you take on the psychology, the values, the behaviors of the people that you're around. Mm. People who are who have obese friends tend to get obese. People who have friends who drink a lot and smoke a lot, they will tend to drink and smoke a lot. And conversely, people who hang around people who are kind, studious, enterprising, they tend to be kind, studious, and enterprising themselves. So this is not to say that you should abandon friends who are depressed or who are having a hard time, but you should be mindful of who you're spending the majority of your time with because it will impact your own feelings and behaviors. So again, this idea of who do you want in your foreground. 
It's so interesting. I remember hearing once from from a therapist this idea that if you're in a committed relationship or a marriage, it's very helpful to hang out with other people that are in marriages or committed relationships and that share the values. It tends to ha- actually keep people together. And it's that idea, I think, of, of how impacted we are by the behavior of our friends or social circles. Definitely something to consider. Well, when you think about AA or Weight Watchers, right. that's the whole dia- idea of that. Right. Hang around people who have that value and want to get better. And mm-hmm. that's how you succeed. Why do you think that this pandemic has been so especially difficult for teens over the last year and what they've been missing in this whole process? Uh, what are your thoughts on that? I, I do see a lot of that research, but I'm I'm not sure I'm totally convinced that it has been harder on teens. Mm. I, I think I think it's been hard for everybody, and maybe teens are more in touch with that. I think as we get older, we sort of put this um, shell over us and, and, and think it's not that important. However, with teens, that is an age where you're really looking to your peers to maybe break away from that your family cocoon and you're Mm. trying to find a sense of yourself and when all of a sudden that's taken away from you that can be particularly difficult because no longer you're no longer growing and finding out who you are you're still the child within the home and so I can see how that would be particularly difficult. But teens were really suffering before the pandemic. Mm. If you look at all of the research, and a lot of that had to do with not having close friends because they were spending so much time on screens. I, I don't know about you, but if you've been to a restaurant lately or gone to a shopping mall and seen teenagers, mm. but this was, of course, before the pandemic, they're not talking to each other. Mm-hmm. They're looking at their screens. They're texting one another, even when they're right next to each other. And I have friends that have children that do the very same thing. And it creates this sense of loneliness that you, you do not get the same connection with another person through a device. Devices are wonderful and helping you bridge the times between when you can be together. But you cannot have the same degree of connection. And that is where a lot of the quote unquote screen generation is why they're so having so much trouble. And mm. that's been documented by many people. And, and that's something that really all of us have to think about now as we're coming out of the pandemic, because we have been sort of reduced to our screens. Mm. And we did realize, boy, this doesn't cut it. This Zoom is not as good as you know, a Zoom happy hour is not as fun as being with actual people. Wow. But also our social skills atrophy. It, it is a skill. And after a year and a half of not practicing that skill, it, th- there are so many fine little social cues, many outside of our awareness, that have fallen into a bit of disrepair. Mm. And so I think people will notice when they go back into social situations that there will be a level of awkwardness that maybe they didn't have before as they're getting back into it. So we all need to give each other a break. That's true, isn't it? Right. I mean, this is something there's been great kind of parodies on this and sketches, but that a lot of us are out there just don't really know how to act or where to put our hands or where to look anymore. It's, <laughs> it's a bit of a strange exactly. Yeah. It is. It's very strange. But it, I, I did a piece um, early on uh, in the pandemic at the Times for the Times about exactly that. And I interviewed people who had been Arctic explorers, who had been on the space mm. station, who had been isolated for various reasons, uh, people who had been in solitary confinement. And that was really something that's noticed of all of them and has been studied that when they come out of it, they, they really don't know how to act. It, mm. it is a skill. It does, it's a muscle. And, and so it's, it's like we haven't run in a year and a half and all of a sudden we're been thrown into, you know, there, do, um, you know, run a, a 10K and do it really right. fast. <laughs> and, and, and that can... That can cause some cramps and sore muscles and that type of thing. So that that really is something to uh, think about as we're coming back into this. Uh, as I said, another one of my stories, you know, this all you can eat, all you can eat buffet of social activity. Are, right. are you going to gorge and pile your plate, or are you going to think about, you know, what what is nourishing and what really sustains me, and am I going to be selective? Yeah. 
Well, you know, you, you've spoken to some of the top psychologists across the country on, on this question, I think, of how, how do we now approach the world as it feels normal again? And, and when you chatted with, with these folks, did you get a sense that they, they were excited to reenter the old world or that they, there was a little bit of almost grief for saying goodbye to a very quiet period, but maybe a very meaningful period in a lot of their lives? Very much grief. I, I really haven't heard anyone be very excited and and that's and, and and feeling very guilty and conflicted about that. They want things to get back to normal, but what normal I think they're they're happy to that the prospect of not wearing a mask and for the fear to go away and to not be restricted and where they can go and who they can see. But I think there's this um, sense of loss and almost a little bit of grief that they're being plunged back into something that maybe they didn't wholeheartedly enjoy before. And that's the sense of running around. I need Mm. to be with the right people or do the right thing or look at what all these other people are doing on social media. Before, when nobody else was able to go out, nobody felt bad. Yeah. They they didn't feel bad. They didn't feel like they were missing anything. That this person has this wonderful life, is having these great parties, going on these great trips, and and so now it's this 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 drive within to keep up with. And and I think it, social media has made that really hard because what's on social media isn't really reality. So right. people are trying to keep up with this this idea of a life that mm. isn't necessarily accurate but still there's that drive and that feeling of inadequacy that makes people not really consider what is really comfortable and who and what makes them happy you've um, mentioned uh, some interesting studies that show that we replace as much as half of our social network every five to seven years. I, can you talk about why it is we do that? Is It's as if we maybe outgrow friendships or they evolve and, and maybe that's okay too? Um, say a little bit more about that. You know, that is such interesting research and I think people recoil from it at first because they think it it really challenges who we think of our when we think of ourselves as a friend that true blue forever friend Mm -hmm. and and so it it almost sounds bad that somehow you're fickle but actually it's it's everyone and and the studies have been done in several countries and there is this churn even in the best of times in relationships and that happens because there's that of course, outgrowing. We are all changing and evolving every day in spite of ourselves. And sometimes relationships do not grow and evolve together, that you may be growing in a different direction as your friend. There's also this idea that we can be as lazy socially as we are physically. (laughs) Mm. People don't exercise, but they can be very lazy socially. And so they really just, it takes, as I said, it takes a lot of time and effort to be a good friend and to be in a healthy relationship. It's, you know, back to that, 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 that friendscape. If you think of a garden, if you don't tend to a garden, what happens to it? You don't yeah. water it. You don't weed it. You don't feed it. It you've, you've got a bunch of dead and struggling plants. And it's the same thing with a friendship if you don't put in the time. So again, this sense of maybe slothfulness socially mm-hmm. where people just hang out with whoever happens to be around um, or whoever's pinging them online instead of really making the effort in a relationship. And yeah. so that happens, that sense of churn can happen because it's just, okay, who's, who's around? And then the third thing that can happen is we often build relationships, again, this sense of lack of effort, around they're built through the organizations that we're in or, say, our children's soccer coach. You, know, the, the, you become friends with your kids' friends or you um, maybe you're a member of a running group or you get into a running club or you know some kind of hobby that type of thing and then when you stop doing that you really weren't that great of friends with those people but it was easy to be friends with them because you saw them all the time it was built into your routine 
And when you change your routine, maybe you change jobs, your kid goes off to college, you go to a different church, you decide that you want to be a swimmer instead of a runner, whatever, and those relationships fall by the wayside. So that's how this churn happens. And it doesn't necessarily mean someone's a bad person, but it's, again, it's what effort are you willing to put in and what about your life is structured around the relationship that keeps it going. And if that structure ends, is the relationship strong enough to continue? And Mm. oftentimes it isn't. And that I think also to recognize that when there is a rupture in a friendship, when a new obstacle comes on board, that that attending to that and fixing that, I mean, is part of the depth of a relationship. I think it's so easy with friendships to kind of say, there's a fight, cast it out, I'm done. You know, with a family member, you might have to repair it. But I think that, I don't know about you, the, the friends that I'm closest with, we've been down in the trenches together for some pretty hard moments. And that's ultimately, I think, what what you bring with you um, moving you know, through time as you grow older. Would you agree with that? Oh, my gosh, yes. I'm so glad you brought that up. Because we think of these these ruptures in relationships as you know something that ends the relationships, but really the the tears and rifts in friendships are actually the ones that are repaired. The repairs on those rifts are actually the fabric of the relationship. That the people that you are closest to are the ones that you can have that upset and then work it out that healthy relationships are not relationships without conflict. It's healthy relationships are determined by the way those conflicts are resolved. And so if they are resolved in a way that's, that's caring and that you both work at it, and really all that need, sometimes in those situations, all that needs to be done is to say, I don't like it that things aren't good between us. And I care mm. about that. That matters to me that things aren't good. And that alone can go a long way. But really, when you have those, those fights or when you say something you shouldn't have or the other person hurts your feelings, to be able to work that out and to really discover why did that hurt that person's feelings? What are the other person's lines in the sand? What is it that in their past that makes that a sensitive area? You get to know them so much better. And that really makes for that close, intimate, and strong relationship. So again, this idea of the patches on relationships being the actual fabric mm-hmm. of the relationship. Those rips and tears are actually, that are covered over, stitched over stronger, make for a better, stronger weave of a relationship. I've been speaking with Kate Murphy, journalist and author of You're Not Listening, what you're missing and why it matters. Kate, thank you so much for joining us again on Life Examined. Really enjoyed it. It was a pleasure. I always like talking to you, Jonathan. Well, that's all for today. The producer of Life Examined is Andrea Brody. You can listen to this and all other episodes on your favorite podcasting app. And if you like what you hear, we'd love to read your review. You can also find us at kcrw.org slash lifeexamined. I'm Jonathan Bastian. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you next week.